This morning, we're going to begin in John chapter 9, verses 1, and then we're going to go through verse 12. It's going to be a passage that we have read in the past, one that you're probably familiar with at some level, but it's probably best for us this morning to go ahead and jump straight into it and then have a discussion together. And so this morning, if you're in-house, stand for the reading of the Word. You'll find it on the screen in front of you. If you're at home or going down the radio, you get the luxury of being able to listen as we read the text aloud. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him beg asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was him. Others said, no, it just looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus. He made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. God, we come before you this morning reading the first portion of what is really a much longer story in our Gospel of John. God, as we spend some time thinking about things like people born blind, people born with afflictions. As we spend some time thinking about weird words like spittle, we pray this morning that you would shed light in our world. Help us to understand you better so that we can serve you better. Is your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, some of you who attend ECN have been here for years and years, and you recognize some things that are not the same as maybe when you were a child, especially when it comes to like the look of the sanctuary. If you haven't been here for very long, though, let me tell you a couple of things. Number one, July 4th of this year, Erin Church of the Nazarene celebrates 125 years of existence, predating the Nazarene denomination, which is pretty stinking cool, right? Now, what do you do when when you have 125th birthday? I don't know, but I know what we're going to do, because I've not made it to 100. We're going to throw a party, right? And that party includes one huge worship service, and we're going to have that out in the wreck. It's going to be awesome. Easter Sunday, uh, good Lord willing and weather uh, permitting, we're going to be out in the wreck. And then again, July 4th, we're going to do a big dinner on the grounds, big birthday party. It's going to be awesome, all right? But what you also need to understand is the building that you're sitting in, even the pulpit that has my notes sitting on top of it this morning are in the 100 and beyond range. I haven't gotten a real clear answer on if the building is 105, 106, somewhere in there, but the building's over 100 years old. And you look around, you think, this place is gorgeous. I mean, the, the ceilings are original to it. The floors, it's amazing how these things have just held up over the years. Well, the reality is, some of you that have been here for a few years, you started giggling, I hear you. things haven't necessarily held up over the years, you know? Now, I'm sure your body is still in the pristine condition it was at 18 years old, but this building in its older age is having some troubles, all right? Now, one of the things I want to show you some pictures of, it wasn't too long ago, over here where Miss Chris, Christian, are sitting, uh, you look down this row, and it's very, very just straight and nice. Some of you have been here long enough to remember when there was a bit of a sag in the floor. Do you remember that? When I say a bit of a sag, we finally measured it. There was four inches of fall between the back door and this section of the wall right here, okay? Like, and it just 
slowly over time. Matter of fact, it had been there so long, we had even put trim down to follow the sag in the floor. That's how long it had been there. So eventually things got a little bit carried away. We thought, all right, look, <clears throat> we need to fix the sag in the floor. I'm not sure if you've ever done a remodel project on an old home or an old sanctuary as this were, but I want to show you a couple of pictures. This is where it began, digging into the floor. This is from June of 2020. So some of you that are involved in this project can't believe me. Like This was almost three years ago. Uh, looking at just this first little picture where we got in, and I believe Barry Sugg is under the floor right there, if I'm not mistaken, and, uh, and he's checking some things out, and some guys up on top, and then, you know, things get carried away. You look at the picture now, it's not a small hole in the uh, sanctuary. Now we have a third of the floor removed, and we're looking at HVAC units, and you can see dirt that is underneath portions of it. You continue to look a little bit further. I got a couple more pictures here of like what this looked like. We continued to find some things that we needed to fix. And if you've ever had one of those projects where like, we need to fix the sag in the floor, and things just continued to get carried away, and we started doing more. Yep, now we've got everything off of the stage. Some of you remember coming up here and pulling uh, staples and all those sorts of things. Every floor joist that you're standing on this morning, by the way, sitting on it, as it is right now, every floor joist is brand new as of 2023. Because when you start sometimes a project like this, you realize like the project just gets bigger and bigger because you un you unravel or un un uh, reveal a little bit more to deal with. Some of you have had home projects, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a little bit more of the finished product as we got closer. You're looking at an entire new floor system, all the things that were done for that. It was quite a chore and, and quite a lot of fun. I want to tell you this morning that the text that we're getting into is very, very similar to any project that you've been a part of at your house, where when you started digging in, you realize it's much bigger than you realized. This entire chapter this morning, we will never have the time on a Sunday morning to do justice at what's going on here and the depth of the questions that Jesus is asking. It is very similar to a sag in the floor that you think we're just going to deal with this one little area, but every time you ask a question or look at one area, you see the bigger, the nature of what's going on here. And one of the things that I want to kind of point out as we go along is let's deal with some of the easy things first, and then we'll deal to some of the more heavy things as we move forward. One of the things that you look at in this picture, and I, and I want to kind of point out to you is this. One is the Pool of Siloam. It's an interesting and a fascinating place. Some of you read about different pools. The Pool of Bethesda is another one we read about uh, fairly often uh, where another man was healed. This is the Pool of Siloam that was created uh, as in a actually created by man. Uh, before the Pool of Siloam existed, the walls outside of the city were, you had to go through the walls and you had to go over some uh, rocky mountainous terrain to go down 33 to 35 steps to be able to get water for the city. And the problem was, if the city was ever under siege, they were cut off from their water supply. Like, that's a problem. So if you ever, if, the, if, if a enemy army came around and encircled the city, then like, they would be cut off from water. And as many of you know, that's a massive, massive problem. You wouldn't survive more than two days if you couldn't get to water, right? Because you could easily cut the city's water supply off. And so, years and years ago, it was commissioned that they needed to, to, uh, to create a way to get water from that exterior water source, that spring of the virgin, I believe is what they called it, or the the fountain of the virgin, that's what they refer to it as. But they need to be able to get, but the problem is there's 386 yards of rock between the inside of the wall and where that water is. So get this, with no technology as we would speak of today, it was commissioned that their version of engineers would begin digging out from each side and cutting their way through the wall to try and meet somewhere in the middle to get water from the outside, the fountain, into what we now know as a pool of Siloam. Now what's interesting is there was 386 yards as you draw a line, as a crow would fly, as they sometimes say in the south. And so when you think about that 386 yards, you're talking about a, a thousand and ninety some odd feet, okay? It's a long distance to be able to make it. And the problem is both sides are digging and they don't know exactly. They're just trying to aim.
aim in the right direction. And what's even more interesting is as they dug, they didn't go in a straight line trying to hit each other. Both of them, as you follow, they zigzagged back and forth. It's interesting to me that they, at the actual distance of the um, canal, if you will, the underground tunnel that they built, uh, is 580 some odd yards long to make a 380 yard distance, okay? Now they talk about as they tried to go back and forth trying to find each other, one of the things that's interesting to me is they eventually found each other. Can you imagine what happens if you're off by like two degrees? You're in another country by the time. You know what I mean? Like, man, I thought we'd be there by now. And you just keep digging. And they're not sure why they, they zigzagged back and forth because they're wondering if they didn't follow like a bit of a fault or a bit of a crack or a bit of a seam. But one of the things that to me is super interesting about this pool that this is taking place at is that in 1880, not BC, you all, we're talking, you know, not even 200 years ago now. In 1880, two boys are playing in what we know as the Pool of Siloam, and they find an inscription on a rock that reads this on a stone tablet. The boring through is completed. Now is the story of the boring through. While the workmen were still working, pick to pick, one toward his neighbor, and while three cubits remained to be cut through, each heard his neighbor. On the day of the boring through, each hit pick to pick, and water gushed through for 1,200 cubits. It was 100 cubits above the heads of the stone cutters. Think for just a moment what it must have been like <clears throat> trying to fortify your city, burrowing through in the time it was taking, and finally hearing voices on the other side of the rock, knowing that you were just about to make it through. And if the water gushed through, what does that mean the guys on the upstream side have been doing the whole time? Working in the water. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know who gets the short straw in this one, but that could not have been fun. And finally, so now the Pool of Siloam, as you see it, is like what anchored the city as this place of being safe and secure. It's an interesting connection to me of like this, this Pool of Siloam, when it's called scent, is because water is sent from that fountain, <clears throat> from that spring into the city. And this is how they would be able to take care of their water, right? The other thing that's very interesting in this story is not just the location of it, but think with me for just a moment. How many of you have used the phrase when you were a kid or when something got hurt? I mean, we have these little phrases that we use. If you fall down and you're hurting and you look at your old-timey grandfather and you're like, you got a bump on your leg, what does he say to you? What are some of the old phrases that you hear? Rub some dirt on it. It'll be fine. <laughs> like that's one of them, right? Yeah, there's some others. I can remember when I was a kid, my gran my, my, uh, either my, my grandfather or my dad, I believe it was my dad in this one, I got stung by a bee. And so he pulls a bit of tobacco out and puts it on the bee sting. You know, one of those like, you know, ways of curing things. One of the things that doesn't make sense to us is Jesus spit on the ground and made mud. You know what I mean? Like this doesn't line up with us. I don't know many conversations where somebody says, just spit on it, it'll be fine. Now there's a little bit of a disgusting one about what happens when you get stung by a jellyfish. Fish, but that's not appropriate for this morning. Some of you know what I'm talking about, okay? So you're not sure what to do, but they're, they're talking about like when you spit in the, and make mud, and to us this sounds absurd, like the man can't see, so what does Jesus do? He puts mud in his eyes with spit. You know what I mean? Like does not sound productive in the healing. You're going to go to the doctor at some point and see an ophthalmologist. You're going to see someone to take care of your eyes, and when you show up and they're going to be like, here, let me make some mud. Open that eye up. We're going to fix it. And they're like, no, 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 no. This ain't the way that works. You know, you're not putting more in my eye to make this better. And yet, so what you need to hear is in their context, there was a belief in a, in a acknowledging within their version of the scientific community that the spittle, which is a fun word, isn't it? Spittle, yep. The spittle of a holy man was said to bring about certain curing properties. And it's not just from a Christian background. This is something that like, by and large, across belief systems, that spittle was seen to be something that's holy. It was an interesting thing that they were to do this. And so Jesus, matter of fact, there's some references in other texts, not the Bible that we read, but in other texts about what all the use of spittle was. There's a guy named Pliny, who's a Roman collector of, of uh, scientific information in that time frame. And I want to tell you some of the things that they believe that spittle could cure. The poison of a serpent. 
You get snake bit, just spit on it. Protection from epilepsy. Fasting spittle could cure, now that means you hadn't eaten in a while, can cure leprosy and red eyes. This is interesting. So if you wake up in your morning and your eyes are a little bit red, just get somebody to spit in them. It'll make it better, right? Cures carcinoma. Cures a crick in the neck. I want you next time someone wakes up, better yet, when you get to the office tomorrow, somebody's going to walk in and go, I did not sleep well. Don't tell them, surprise cure them. Just go, Phew. You know, tell them, I read this in the Bible. It works. You know what I mean? Like, this is how this works. I'm telling you that in their context, it makes perfect sense, though it doesn't make perfect sense maybe in our world. But in their context, like, this is, this is the way things were done, okay? Now, we've had a little bit enjoying some of the fun of the easy ones. Take a step deeper into this and recognize, number one, who begins the asking of questions in this story? You go further down in the story and you get Pharisees giving Jesus a hard time. But I need you to recognize in the beginning of the story, who's asking the question? This is disciples. This is not chastising Jesus. This is not throwing rocks. You know, so many times we hear Jesus get questioned and we think it is Sadduc the Sadducees, the Pharisees, other uh, teachers, rulers, all that sort of thing. And they're trying to trick Jesus. These are sincere people struggling through what their culture considers to be normal and what they're dealing with. And they're asking Jesus sincerely. Can you imagine as they're walking or moving and they see this blind man in the distance that everyone has seen, which by the way, this is the only blind man, the only person afflicted since birth in the Bible, by the way. This clearly defined as since birth. So like there's a, there's a very real reason that that is noted in this story. It's like they see him in the distance, and this is the part that's a little bit sad to me. They use him as their point of reference for asking a difficult question. They see a blind man who has been blind since birth, and to them the question is, did he sin in the womb or is he paying for his parents' sin? Like, And some of us are really, really quick to dismiss like, no, you, you don't pay for your parents' sin. That's, that's not how this works. You know, and it, no, that's sinning in the womb. Like, well, just bear with me for a moment. See this, this conversation a little bit bigger than maybe the quick and the knee-jerk answer of not paying for your parents' sin. Don't you pay for your parents' sin? Don't your kids pay for yours? I mean, isn't there a nature at some level? I mean, bear with me, because I know based on your lenses and what you've endured in life thus far, these, will hit, these questions hit raw nerves. And, and hitting raw nerves is not something we need to dodge for the sake of keeping us comfortable, by the way. Let's go ahead and acknowledge, let's deal with raw nerves, okay? Uh, let's ask better questions of the Bible, of God, and let's, let's, so that we know better, and then we can better serve Him and image, image Him, as I prayed earlier. So like, let's ask a difficult question here for a moment and say, like, then how do we deal with this question of who sinned, this man or his parents? I tell you what, let's just put that off to the side for a little bit, because I don't know we're quite... Yeah, let's just wait on that for a minute. Let's go back to an easier one. How about that? Let's go back to an easier one for a minute. In the complaints that they have against Jesus, if you read down in the story a little bit further, because I just didn't want to read to you 40-something verses, because quite frankly... Statistically speaking, if I read 40-something verses to you, the vast majority of you check out before I get anywhere near the end. Okay, like mentally check out. So like, understand this. Later on, the Pharisees start asking Jesus questions or asking other people questions about what has happened in this man being healed. And you want to know something that the disciple or that the Pharisees are asking Jesus? What are they most, some of you that have read this story before, what are they most frustrated about about this man being healed? What's their chief complaint? Give a hint, it's the timing. Yeah, some of you are saying it. He healed on the Sabbath. Let's deal with that one for a minute because it's a little bit easier than getting back off. And maybe we'll revisit that other one in a minute. So like when you think about them chastising Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath, I read this story and, and you all read it from your lenses. You know, you're reading it from the place that you sit, from your life, your career, all those sorts of things. So I read it from a preacher's lenses this morning. I read it from a preacher's lenses to you this morning as, as like as I see it in the story. 
what a wonderful problem. You know what I mean? Like, of their complaints, I'm going to complain. I'm going to chastise Jesus because he's doing good on the Sabbath. Is that not an awesome problem? I want, I want to live to the place where I can show up at ECN on a Sunday morning and say, hey, I think y'all are working too hard serving people on Sundays. What a good problem. You know, we don't really know this morning how to deal with the Sabbath because the reality is our understanding of Sabbath is far removed from their understanding of Sabbath because of how seriously they took a day of rest and those sorts of things. I mean, like, I'm more worried this morning about the fact that over 90% of our county chooses not to be involved in much of a Sabbath whatsoever other than serving themselves. I mean, let's just rip the bandaid off and be real here for a moment. Like, you have either chosen this morning to sit in a sanctuary or maybe you've chosen to be driving down the road or you've chosen to be sitting at home listening to a sermon. But regardless, you have to engage this text from wherever you're sitting this morning. And I would say this, like, I think it's a good thing and I think it's very biblical that we have chosen to be here in person, in worship together and participating in something greater. Participating in something that sets aside Sunday as different from every other day. Because quite frankly, I'm super, super glad. Man, it is awesome to be able to bump into people on a regular basis and tell me about listening to our sermons on the radio. Tell me about like them tuning in through Zoom, but the vast majority of people that I have this conversation with are folks listening to us on the radio. And let me tell you, if you're listening on the radio this morning, I'm genuinely grateful and humbled that you choose to spend 30 minutes with ECN on a Sunday morning. But I also think you as a part of the body of ECN and all of us as a part of the body of ECN have to ask the question of like, is this what Sabbath means? Taking 30 minutes out to listen on a Sunday morning, taking maybe an hour to sit here in a Sunday morning service. Like, how do we recognize and do Sabbath well? I, I would love the, the, the problem of saying like, I'm frustrated because this person is serving too much on Sunday. That seems like such a good problem. But instead, we allow ourselves to step out away from and, and, and not attend church. Uh, we say things like, you know, I don't want to go to church and I, I'm not going there as regularly or I don't, I don't like to go there because I don't want to sit with all the hypocrites. That's one of the funniest excuses I've ever heard, by the way. Can we just take a moment to illustrate how that is funny? Have you ever been to Cleggren's, which is our local grocery store, and walked out the door and said, those two people went into the grocery store and left without buying a thing. I will not be with hypocrites anymore. This place is for buying groceries and they didn't do it. I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. Have you ever been maybe to the lake? That's another good one. You go to the lake and you're like, I was at the lake and there are people who don't know how to ski and they didn't even try. I was there and there were people not catching fish. What are you going to the lake for? A bunch of hypocrites. I'm not doing it. This is another fun one. Have you ever been to the gym and looked around for a minute? People out of shape. People walking on a treadmill. People just jiggling around, going to places, doing the things that they're doing, and none of them in really, really good shape. I don't want to be there anymore because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Folks, are you not understanding how lame and ridiculous of an excuse not going to church because of the hypocrites is? If you're not going to church because of the hypocrites, you miss the point of being there in the first place. We are not here to look at each other. Amen? We're here to learn more about who Jesus is so we can serve him better, so we can worship him in the process. Let me tell you what, their problem of what's happening on the Sabbath, I long for the days of having that problem because my bigger concern is like, we're not recognizing Sabbath very well at all when it comes to times of rest, when it comes to what it means to, to be involved in worship together. And so wherever you may be sitting this morning, the Holy Spirit may be convicting you and recognizing what Sabbath means. Well, now we've dodged it long enough. But are they suffering? And is this man suffering because of his sin or because of what his parents have done? It's really, really hard to say that we don't suffer because of what our parents have done. Let's, let's stick away from our own situations and just point biblically for a moment. Are you not all living in the ripple effects of Adam and Eve? Easiest point for me to make. Every one of us living in the ripple effects of what somebody before us has done. Are you not living in the ripple effects of what other people have made a decision in your life you had no choice over? Absolutely. Have you suffered because of what other people have done? 
Absolutely. Have we done things in our lives that other people will suffer coming behind us? Absolutely. But the trouble is they associated suffering as a result of sin. Understand like, what's the causation of suffering in this? And in their understanding, it was because of sin that had occurred that suffering was taking place. And even so, because of the sin of your parents that you could be suffering. And I'm not saying that there isn't some reality. This is one of those difficult lines we have to consider, think through, and work through. Is like, how do we consider the fact that yes, there is some suffering that takes place, but is it, is it God's judgment on you that you're suffering? Or is it the natural cause and effect and reality that not long ago I went and helped a veterinarian pull a calf in our county. And when I helped them pull a calf, the mom was so rogue and just wild that they ended up having to use an a, a, uh, anesthetic to get the cow to lay down so that we could pull the calf. And as soon as he pulled the calf out of the mom, <clears throat> he had to use a dart in order to get anywhere close, which was a whole nother rodeo in itself, uh, in the dark with cows, though, my gracious, and a dart gun, like all the, the things that can go wrong. And yet when we finally get the mom laid down and sedated, we pull the calf and the calf wasn't breathing. And as some of you have done this many, many times, you hold the calf upside down and you're shaking and trying to get the fluids out so that the calf will take that first breath. And there's a moment you're trying to save the calf's life and you've got mom who's sedated and, and, and the, the doctor who was, there, who was there was saying like, hey, the problem is like, this calf has an overdose of sedative. And it finally clicked in my head. The reason the calf's not waking up is because we had to shoot the mom with a dart 15 minutes ago. And that is absolutely being passed down to the mom, down to the child. You know, like, in the same way, my grandparents used to take care of infants. They were coming from drug houses. Folks, it's, it's hard. It's tough. So there's some reality we have to make peace with, but we have to separate. Jesus is making a very clear statement here. It is not the judgment of sin that this is like God getting back at humanity. This is the natural, this is the way the system is set up that when we sin, there are some sometimes things that we suffer through, and sometimes even things that our kids suffer through because of the mistakes that we've made, but it doesn't necessarily condemn this person as having sinned on their own. They're just simply living in the ripple effects of somebody else's mistake. And that may seem like semantics to you, but please see that it is not. This is a big deal because, because some of you are so tied into thinking your connection to your parents dooms you, or your connection to your own mistakes dooms you. And I need you to hear, especially when it comes to like the families that you come from, Jesus is saying you are, you, if you are suffering, it is not because of the judgment of someone else's sin that you are suffering. I think we need to separate this connectedness to sinfulness and suffering and understand that like suffering is going to happen, period, the end. Amen? It's going to happen. Life is tough. Like us acting like everything is butterflies and buttercups. And I appreciate like we come in services on a Sunday morning and we're genuinely grateful to see each other. I appreciate that. But let's also acknowledge life is flat out difficult. Making it through this life, you will suffer and you will endure things. But please disassociate some of this from it being a direct result that you have seen and now God is smiting you, so to speak. Sometimes suffering is just a part of going through this life. As a matter of fact, you would ask the question about this suffering that's going on. When they ask the question of like, who sinned this man or his parents? We're still dealing with the parents for a second. And one of the things that Jesus said, this man did not, is not suffering because of sin. Why is this man suffering? It's an opportunity for God to show himself in the midst of it. I understand that's a steep price, amen? My suffering sometimes as an opportunity for God to show himself is difficult. I need to point you no further than Jesus to exemplify or to, to express to you all that it is at the core of the nature of God interacting in this world that it is, it is us working through the difficult things that help us to understand Jesus better, to understand ourselves better, and were it not for the difficult things that we suffer through, I don't think I can say it that way. I think I can say it this way. It is because of the, of the difficult things we suffer through that we better understand a Savior who suffered at the greatest level for us. There's something connected to suffering in difficult times. It gives us a better understanding of who Jesus is. The next
next part of this conversation is one that's very odd for our, our existence sometimes here in the 2023 year, right? But could this man have sinned in the womb? This goes back to a very core conversation that like we have to do and think well. Start asking that question. You see, in their understanding of soul and their understanding of humanity, in many of their understandings, they had kind of formulated or maybe postulated that there was a, a bank, a reserve room of souls, if you will, that was waiting to be placed. And because of their understanding of, of sin and the nature of suffering and those sorts of things, they would start to ask, well then, like, when does evil inhabit? Is evil, there's an Old Testament reference that someone would use, like waiting at the proverbial gate, i.e. when the child was born, that evil then, you know, began to, to do its thing, or did evil begin earlier? And some of the theologians that were arguing back in this day would say, you know, it is even in the selfish nature of an unborn infant fighting its way out and, and scratching that, that breaks the water of a, of, a, of a womb and then begins that process, that it was, that maybe that's what causes this. And so the, maybe the evil is, evil's temptation or action on, on life begins back at the embryo. And the, folks, this is difficult ground that they are walking through. Amen? It's difficult ground that we still deal with. We have difficult conversations and like things to think about and to consider. We're in a, in a world today that deals with like, you know, where, where do things begin is the exact same question here. Like, is sin able to enter, therefore a soul inhabited in the embryo? Or is a soul able to be inhabited at some point in life? And like, how does that navigate? And we as a church are left in some very difficult places. And one of those difficult places is like, how do we deal with the less than 1% of fetuses that are aborted because of medical, very, very real medical concerns over life for fetus or mom? Look, we don't adopt some situation where we just like watch everything take place. I mean, how many of you have taken some sort of medication instead of just trusting that Jesus would make your headache go away? How many of you took some sort of medication in the last week? I get sore. You know what I take? A leave. You know why? It works. I feel like God gave it to us, but like I don't know how to navigate where do we intercept letting God do what God will do and using what God has given us. I know this that concerns me, ending life because of convenience. I can't get past. I can't get past ending life, ending any level of that, of that life just out of sheer convenience, which statistically is the vast majority of what we're talking about when we talk about the abortion discussions in our country. The, the thing that irks me about convenience, and I understand this morning, we need to be very careful that I'm, I'm, I'm walking around areas that every family in this room has dealt with at some level. Some of you at a very real level. Um, and I need you to know that just because we may be talking about something that's more sensitive to you this morning, recognize that every morning when we talk about sensitive topics, it is one of us that we're having to deal with this, okay? We're having to work through these things. And I'm doing so as delicately as I can to say, like, we need to consider very carefully the ramifications of what our world is telling us to be normal in many cases. And ask, like, what does God want of us? And the thing that scares me about abortion of convenience is the anti-Eucharist verbiage that it is based in. Convenience. What does Jesus say to his disciples? This is my body, broken and given for you. And abortion from convenience is this is my body, I'll do what I want. Okay, to be careful. Real, real careful here. Um, I don't know yet. I'm still working through how how to, to make decisions or think about saving life and navigating that. That's more difficult for me, but not allowing life because of convenience and convenience's sake. I don't know how to say this more plainly. It scares the bejesus out of me. So when we think about these questions that these disciples are asking, it's not just plain as who sinned. They're asking core questions about life in general and how do we view suffering in this world? How do we view when we're suffering? Is it something that we did even in the embryo, even in the stage of being a fetus? How, how, do, we, how do we navigate through those things? And those are still questions that we're working through every generation, working through and asking those questions of God. Don't hesitate to ask the same questions. These are good-natured, good people wanting to know the truth from Jesus as they navigate these things. And yet this morning, I need you to hear, while and as you deal with suffering, one of the parts of the story, not that it's, it's something we would do in a place of commerce, that we would say, yes, God, give me more suffering necessarily so that I can better know you. It's a hard thing for us to ask. Yet we recognize when we endure suffering of many kinds, whether 
whether it is inflicted upon ourselves that we've done something foolish and now we're suffering through that, or just flat out life has dealt us a very difficult hand, Jesus still points them back. It is through suffering that you will recognize the work of God even greater. It's not a consolation. It's not a, oh, so this makes it okay. You know what I mean? So it makes this fun, but suffering it kept in proper perspective of the suffering that I'm going through and what I'm dealing with may be a way for God to reveal himself to me greater. And for me to be an example, folks, it's one of the great stories and part of the story. This man is able to go. And if you watch his story, I'm out of time this morning, but if you watch his story, he begins with this man named Jesus. He eventually calls him something like a prophet. And finally at the end, he goes, I don't know what to call him, but let me tell you this. I used to not be able to see and now I can. You know what I mean? The man pointing other people back to Jesus, working through all those things. He's, he's working through them, but at the end, he's able to point people back to Jesus. So maybe in the midst of your suffering, you're able to, to point people back toward Christ. Some of you, some of you ran a 5K yesterday based in that exact thought. Yeah. God would come before you this morning, navigating with the disciples in many ways, difficult conversations and, and uncertainties. We don't get the benefit, God, of when humanity as a species may have learned a lesson, then all of us have learned a lesson. We are all born into an existence where we have to work through and navigate and ask good questions. And we have to, with sincerity and, and with open heart and, and with a, a desire for you to speak to us, God, we have to ask you difficult questions sometimes. And in this text, that's exactly what's taking place. And so help us to continue to navigate those difficult questions as well. God, in the end of this story, in the general nature is a dealing with suffering. And so especially for those this morning that are in a statement, or not a statement, but a segment of life in which suffering is real, God, would you help them to see you at work in the midst of it? Would you help them to see suffering as a way that you have revealed yourself to your people time and time again? Sometimes, God, that's in us being able to trust you in the midst of suffering and therefore being more faithful people when we have endured and, and overcome that, that time of suffering. For others, we may be able to go back into this life and say, you know, I don't have it all figured out, but let me tell you one thing. I used to be blind and now I see. That's all I need to know. God, I pray that you would guide us as we deal with suffering in this life. We love you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.